number of years ago, I decided to take a walk on a path in the woods by myself. I generally enjoy camping and hiking, <clears throat> and my personality could easily be described as introverted, so I figured I'd marry the two ideas together and go on a hike on a path on my own. I discovered not long after I got into my hike that it was actually a terrible idea. Hiking on your own in the woods is a little creepy. I don't know if you've ever tried it before. It doesn't help that I watched too many horror and sci-fi movies growing up. <laughs> Besides which, I grew up in and around Baltimore, so I generally tend to be suspicious of wide open spaces and <laughs> tight, narrow spaces and really every kind of space in between. I spent most of my time not enjoying the beauty of the outdoors, but wondering if someone or something was going to jump out of some crevice <laughs> at any moment. I had to keep reminding myself that it is, in fact, a beautiful day out. There, was, there is, in fact, much to be enjoyed about the outdoors, that aliens are probably not going to come to pluck me from the forest, and I have actually hiked before without incident. I had to remind myself of those things, but suffice it to say, it wasn't the most enjoyable walk. It's probably some psychologist-type personality out there listening and wondering if there's some event in my past that uh, caused me to react the way that I did, but in one sense, it really doesn't matter. Walked away with a clear conviction that hiking on your own, again, is very creepy, and um, I probably won't ever do it again. You may be wondering what difference that story makes this morning. Well, while you may not agree with the statement that hiking on your own is creepy, I think that we can all agree with that being alone in a deserted wilderness with perhaps no end in sight is not appealing to anyone. While most of us will not experience a loneliness to that degree, being physically lost in a deserted wilderness, sometimes the trials that we experience in life the difficulties that we experience in life make us feel that way. The sudden, either expected or unexpected loss of a loved one, notification of a life-threatening or life-altering illness, the loss of a job, betrayal or abandonment by a close friend. There are some situations in life that make us feel as if we're wandering around in a barren wilderness with no end in sight, no help in sight, and possibly no hope for the future. We find ourselves in those kinds of situations asking, what in the world am I to do now? As a believer, how should I respond to this? Well, as we continue in our series in the Psalms, that is the context of Psalm 63, which will be our focus for this morning. David is experiencing a trial that caused him to literally be, be out in a deserted wilderness, feeling completely alone with no end to this trouble in sight. I frequently said that the beauty of the Psalms is that the content of the Psalms ebbs and flows right along with the fluctuation of emotions that we experience during the events of life. However, they're not simply raw commentary on those emotions. They're written from the perspective of a believer. Yes, believers have some significant high points in their emotional and spiritual experience, but they also have low points. The Psalms encourages us 
that while we're in those low points, there's a certain way that we ought to think as believers. There's a certain way that we ought to respond as believers. And it encourages us to respond particularly in thinking about who the Lord is. Well, the question that I want you to be thinking about this morning is how can you find refreshment in the Lord in the midst of experiencing a wilderness moment in life? How can you find refreshment in the Lord in those times? I think that's the focus of Psalm 63. I'll read the psalm to get before you this morning and then we'll pray and look at it in more detail. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouth of liars will be stopped. Father, we thank you for this day once again. We thank you for your word, your word which is truth, your word which sanctifies us. We pray that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening this morning. We pray this in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Well, again, how can you find refreshment in the midst of the most difficult, wilderness-wandering kind of experiences in life? David's experience here will encourage us in three ways. In those wilderness-type seasons in life, we can find refreshment as we first learn to delight in the presence of the Lord. Verses 1 through 4. Second, as we reflect on the Lord's provision, that's verses 5 through 8. And third, as we anticipate the Lord's protection, that's verses 9 through 11. Delight in the Lord's presence, reflect on the Lord's provision, anticipate the Lord's protection. Let's look at that first point. As we encounter those wilderness wandering periods in life, in order to find refreshment, we must learn to delight in the Lord's presence. Again, verses 1 through 4. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. There are many psalms like this one that have a title in the original text. That title often provides authorship and sometimes it provides instructions. And we don't always know the exact meaning of all those instructions that are there. Um, We just know that sometimes it indicates that the psalm was to be played according to a certain type of tune or in a certain 
in a certain way, those instructions were given most likely to the worship leader as they read through the Psalms and used them in worship. Sometimes that, um, that bit of instruction that comes before the first verse is very detailed, as it was in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, you have that, that inscription that says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so we know what Psalm 51 is all about. We have the context for it. At other times, it's a little more generic, such as in the case of our psalm. It just says a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. I say it's generic because David spent a good deal of time in the wilderness of Judah. So we don't know exactly when this would have taken place or when he would have written this psalm. We often wonder when we read the psalms, like what, what is it that motivated him to write this particular psalm in this particular way? Now, there are a couple of occasions that come to mind in the life of David for which this psalm may fit. The first would have been his wilderness escape from the hand of Saul. Early on in David's ministry, um, as a part of Saul's army, if you remember, Saul frequently tried to capture and even kill David. He was growing bitter about David's success, knowing that the kingdom was already slipping from his hands. He was growing bitter about David's success, and so he often sought after David sought to capture him and David spent a good deal of time wandering about in the wilderness and in the wilderness of Judah trying to escape the hand of Saul. <clears throat> a second occasion that makes a little more sense, I mean, in, that, in the case of uh, David trying to escape from Saul, David wasn't yet king, but this psalm refers to him as king, so that's less likely. What seems more likely is another occasion in which David fled to the wilderness of Judah was when he fled from the hands of his son Absalom. <coughs> Absalom was David's son and he attempted to take the throne from David by force. Now Absalom was eventually killed and David remained king but for a time David had to flee the kingdom. He left Jerusalem and he found himself once again in the wilderness of Judah. The tone of this psalm, as you read through it, is of a man in great distress, great turmoil. One has been physically separated from where God is. I mean, how much more distressing can you get? How much more of a, of a wilderness kind of season in life can you get than to have your own son attempt to replace you as king and threaten to take your life? David was literally in a deserted wilderness, abandoned by all, basically run out of town, and he felt the weight of that on his soul. In a situation like that, there are a lot of things to consider. Some of the questions that might have run through my mind, Lord, how has it come to this? What am I going to do next? Is my life as king over? I mean, where did I go wrong in my parenting? I mean, of all the awful parents and all the awful parenting styles there are what does it say about your parenting when your only your own son wants you dead not only that but days earlier you were sleeping in a comfortable plush kingly bed surrounded by everything you ever needed and wanted now you're sleeping out in a harsh cold desert wilderness Again, of all the questions that I know would have been on top of mind for me, David proves why he was called a man after God's heart. Instead of lamenting the stuff that he had lost, the comforts, the treasures, instead of lamenting the harm that was done to him by his own son, instead of dwelling on the wrongs, cursing those who had wronged him, and hoping for an end of the trial, 
That doesn't mean he didn't struggle with some of those things. But instead of focusing on all of those things, what was on top of mind for David was the Lord. He was thinking of God, who God is, and of his desire to be near to God. Look again at verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David says that the Lord is God. As he's thinking about who God is, he remembers that he is first God. He acknowledges that the Lord, the one to whom he prays as a believer, is God. The Lord is not some work of fiction. The Lord is not some idea or thought only to be considered in times of spiritual activity, like when you go to church and you know, you think about who God is on Sunday and then Monday through Saturday you kind of check out. No, the Lord is God. He is the true and living God. He is the sovereign ruler and creator of all things. God is. In times of distress, we sometimes need to remind ourselves that even though we feel like we're in a desert, a wilderness, all alone, we can never truly be alone because God is. The Lord is God, but he's much more than that for the believer. David says, the Lord is our God. Oh, God, you are my God. We might say in theology that David's thought moved from the transcendence of God to the imminence of God. The transcendence of God speaks of his otherness his greatness, his untouchability. This is a picture of God in Isaiah chapter 6, high and lifted up with the throne, the the train of his robe filling the temple. The glory of God shining all around, angels attempting, attending him, singing night and day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the Almighty. In light of the glory and splendor, and the majesty of God, Isaiah falls on his face like a dead man. He pronounces a curse upon himself. Woe is me, for I have seen the king in all of his glory. And that was the right response. There's a very real sense of danger that we should even, that we should feel when we consider gazing upon the greatness of the glory of God. We have in our day become so flippant about the person of God, the nature of God, people taking the name of God, even the word of God itself, even if they don't have a real sense of the personality of God, they take his name in vain. They treat him with great disrespect. But God is almighty. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is lofty and exalted, high and lifted up. He is the ruler of all. We dare not gaze upon him or come in his presence flippantly. I think about that song, I can only imagine. He says, surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence or to my knees? Will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I think if I were surrounded by the glory of God and all his splendor and majesty, the answer is simple. I would fall down on my face. And I dare not speak. For fear of offending his glory. The good thing is that we don't come before a God who is only transcendent, who is only other, worldly, who is only separate and distinct from his creation. 
we consider his transcendence, but we also consider his imminence. His imminence means his nearness, his closeness, his relatability. Also in Isaiah, the coming of the Messiah is referred to, he is referred to as the Prince of Peace. In Ephesians 2, Paul says of Jesus, who is the long-awaited Messiah, that he himself is our peace. By the blood of his cross, the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, the sin that separated us from God has been taken away. The penalty for sin that was due to us has been satisfied. Because of his substitutionary death on the cross, Jesus is our peace. Therefore, we now have access to the throne of God without worry. Jesus said it himself in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's no other way to get to the Father but through Jesus, and therefore if you come to Jesus, then you have access to the Father. To them, to those who have faith in Jesus, God is no longer simply the sovereign ruler of creation who dwells in unapproachable light. To them, in Jesus, he is our God. He is our Father. We delight in the presence of God, knowing that even if all others were to desert us, even if we had to flee to a deserted wilderness, even if those things were not physically true, but due to some circumstance we felt that way in life, we would never truly be alone because we've come to know the one who is a true and living God, and we've come to know him as Father. The Lord is God. The Lord is our God. The Lord is good. Again, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Again, David could have had so many questions top of mind. He could have been thinking about any number of things that he missed about the comforts of life. But what was top of mind for him was the goodness of God earnestly I seek you my soul thirsts for you my flesh faints for you he says Davis David longed for the goodness of God he was clearly in distress yes he says my soul thirsts my flesh faints he says it is as if I am in a dry and weary land where there is no water and he actually was in a dry and weary land but he felt that way. Have you ever really been thirsty, I wonder? Some of us have experienced dehydration on some level, but I mean really thirsty. Like you've, you've traveled for some time, hours and hours without liquid refreshment. You start to feel a little lightheaded. You start to feel a little wheeze, weary, a little sick to the stomach. I think most of us have experienced that on some level or another, but never truly been thirsty. I'm pretty sure most of us would never intentionally skip a meal, right? We'd probably throw a tantrum if we missed a meal. Temporary lingo, we have a term hangry to describe when you're so hungry that you're angry. But most of us don't really know what hunger is here in our pampered, sheltered American existence. We don't know what it really means to thirst, but David understood what it meant to thirst. David had been in the wilderness enough to know what it feels like to be in a dry and weary land where there is no water and to need water. And he compares that feeling, the experience of that feeling with how he feels now. This feeling that he has now is beyond the physical though. This is a feeling that he has in his soul. 
And he says, my soul thirsts for you. It's a deeper thirst. He has a deeper yearning. A deeper yearning that goes beyond the physical and can only be satisfied by one source. Again, earnestly I seek, what? You. In reference to God. My soul thirsts for you, O God. David desires the presence of the Lord as much as he would desire to quench his thirst in a waterless wasteland. The Lord is that important, that significant to his soul. I'll put it another way. The Lord is his greatest good. In the midst of all that is going on, it is not an end to the trial that David earnestly seeks. It's not vindication before those who have wronged him that he earnestly seeks. It's not the return to a comfortable habitation that he earnestly seeks. David earnestly seeks the Lord himself. I wonder if during your seasons of wilderness wanderings, those times when you feel spiritually thirsty, perhaps in the midst of a long sickness, a debilitating disease or physical ailment, those times when discouragement grows in our heart, discomfort grows, there appears to be no end in sight, no respite. Is the Lord in your mind, believer? As you watch loved ones pass from this life to the next, no matter how old or young they are, as you scramble to figure out how you're going to pay the bills, as you have lost your job or you have some financial distress, when it becomes time for you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, will you give yourself over to fear or you remember that the Lord is with you? Tim Keller, a fairly well-known and influential pastor and teacher, went to be with the Lord a few days ago after a long fight with cancer. When this happens, those who are well-known and who have had a significant influence in the church at large, it's customary for those who knew and interacted with them to remember them in various ways. Kind of like how we share words of remembrance at a funeral. You'll see various people writing or speaking about um, the influence of this person. Well, a podcast in which Tim Keller spoke reposted an audio clip of Tim Keller sharing his thoughts about life and death when he was dealing with cancer the time before. In that clip, Keller stated very simply and yet profoundly, death will make me better. And I say those words are very simple and yet profound. Those words encapsulate the hope of every believer. This world will not make us better. Abiding long in this world will not make us better. Comfort in achieving all of what our heart desires will not make us better. An end to all of our trials will not make us better. What will make us better is when we finally get to see and be with the Lord. First John chapter three, we will be like him when we see him face to face. That is our hope, beloved. That requires nearness to him. That's ultimately what we're saved for. That's going to be the result of our salvation, our final redemption. When we are with him and made fully like him. Do you think of the Lord as your greatest good? Is the one you need above all? Your greatest need, the greatest need of your soul when all else has failed around you? Do you see him in that way? That should be the testimony of every believer. If you struggle with that, you may wonder, how do you get there? 
How do you get to thinking that way as, as the Lord as your greatest good? How do you get to thinking of him that way when you're in the midst of a barren wasteland? Where in our text, David says, the Lord is God, the Lord is good, the Lord is my good. And then he acknowledges that the Lord is great. He says, I've learned to delight in the presence of the Lord because he is a great God. Verses two through four, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. We need to have in our mind, in our hearts, a picture of God that is bigger, greater than anything else. If your problem is bigger than your God, you won't be able to delight in him in times of distress. David's God is bigger. Bigger than the distress of a son who wants him dead. Bigger than the distress of having to run from his home. Bigger than the betrayal of so many others in the kingdom who flock to his son's side instead of remaining loyal to him. Listen again to the text. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. David says, I've seen your power and your glory. I've seen your greatness. I've seen you in all your splendor and majesty. I've worshiped you when I've gathered together with your people. The Shekinah glory descending, the fire falling from heaven to consume the sacrifices. I've seen how great you are. There's an awareness of God that we can only get when we come to worship. And we don't come in the same way to a tabernacle or to a temple. But we do come together to worship the Lord as we gather every Sunday. We do sing of his glory. We do speak of his glory. We do pray to him as the king of glory. All of these things are ways that we remind one another of the greatness of God. And if you don't come to the fellowship, then you won't have those reminders. If you don't gather together with the people of God committed to one another, committing to remind one another about these truths, serving one another, building one another up in love, if you don't have that kind of relationship with other believers, and especially when you're going through those wilderness wandering seasons of life, you won't have that encouragement. You've seen these people. You know these kinds of people. You know the folks who are enduring difficulty and distress in life. You know those who struggle with the weight of their own sin, the weight of trials, the weight of health concerns. You know those who allow those things to drive them not to the Lord, but away from the Lord, away from the gathering, away from the fellowship, the very source of grace that God has given to serve as that constant reminder of the greatness of our God. David said, I saw those things in the sanctuary when I was gathered together with the people of God in worship. We need to see God as greater than all other things. Again, the text says, I was reminded of your power and your glory. He says, I was reminded, verse 3, that your steadfast love is better than life. The steadfast love of the Lord refers to his covenant love, his faithfulness to his covenant, his faithfulness to continue to love his people, whether they are faithful or not. His faithfulness to save his people, whether they are faithful or not. He seeks after us. He provides a sacrifice, the sacrifice. He maintains the relationship with us. He fulfills all the promises in accord with his covenant. This was true between God and his people in the Old Testament. It's true between God and his people today. Someone once said that we must constantly preach the gospel to ourselves as believers. As much as we endeavor to make disciples by preaching the gospel to those who've never heard, or to those who don't know the Lord currently, we must continually preach the gospel to ourselves to remind ourselves of these truths. 
There's always going to be some reason to drift. There's always going to be some reason to despair. There's always going to be some ideology to attempt to turn us away from our steadfast commitment to Jesus. There will always be something in this ever-changing world, even the fear and approach of death in the life of many a believer causes distress and anguish. And yet the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. By that, the word of God means that it is better than this life, than the life that we live in the flesh, this temporary fleeting life, this weak, prone to sickness, subject to atrophy, heading toward failure kind of life, this life where we're beaten down and weighed down by sin and its effects. The steadfast love of the Lord, his covenant faithfulness, the salvation given to us by the sacrificial death of Jesus will always be better than this life. And this was Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says everything, doesn't matter what it is. Every religious deed, all of my possessions, all of my accomplishments, all of my human relationships, every aspect of life that might make me appear successful is loss in comparison to knowing Christ. Why? Because it is in knowing Christ that you have the righteousness of God. It is in knowing Christ that you have eternal life, not this temporary, fleeting, weak life. It is in knowing Christ that you have peace with God, that you've been made right in him. What would you trade for that? Again, temporary health? Again, possessions that are subject to moth, rust, thieves, taxes? What would you trade for eternal life? Another few years with a loved one? What would you trade for eternal life? Jesus once asked the question, what if you gained the whole world but lost your soul? What would you trade for eternal life? David says that there's nothing better than the steadfast love of the Lord. And I have that in him. Because that is true, we will always have a reason to praise him. It doesn't matter what happens in this life. Again, verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. The reason for our praise, the reason for our worship is never favorable circumstances. The reason for our praise and worship is a never-changing reality. It is an eternal reality. It is a reality of the salvation that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. His steadfast love. And again, I wonder if you believe that. If you believe that, then your lips should testify to it. Your lips should testify to it no matter what else is happening in life. If you are thinking rightly about who God is and what he's done, there will never be a day or a circumstance that can prevent you from singing his praise because his steadfast love is better than life. And that was David's heart as he sat in a barren wilderness on the run from his son's attempt to take his life and his kingdom. His heart was refreshed and moved to joy as he considered not an end to the trial, but rather as he considered the goodness and greatness of God. And we spent a lot of time on those verses, but I think those three verses are kind of foundational to the entire passage. We'll move a little bit quickly as we continue through the rest. 
Again, as we encounter those wilderness wandering periods in order to find refreshment, we must learn to delight in the presence of the Lord, in the Lord's presence. But we must also, secondly, reflect on the Lord's provision. That's verses 5 through 8. We must learn to reflect on the Lord's provision. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Continuing in the same theme of the reality of life in a barren wilderness, he moves from the concept of thirst to that of hunger. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Again, the imagery is of one who's lost in the wilderness without the prospect of food and water. And then to find food, not just any food, but food that is fat and rich is like a treasure. He says, though I've been wandering about in the barren wilderness, literally and metaphorically, It feels that way. Though that is true, in the Lord, my soul will be satisfied. My soul will be satisfied and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. This is the kind of satisfaction after a good meal when you kind of sit back, maybe relax. Maybe you need to loosen your belt a little, you know, those those Thanksgiving kind of meals. And you just kind of say, oh, man, that was good. The delight of a, a, a good meal. But this is the delight of a good meal, a meal like that after having gone traveled through a barren wasteland without eating for days. David says, this is the kind of satisfaction my soul will experience. And he says, my soul experiences this, look again at the text, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the night watches. When I think about the Lord, when I reflect on the Lord, but not just meditating and reflecting in general, Verse 7, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Remember, again, David is writing this from the position of being in the wilderness. He's not talking about relief from the present situation. He's talking about the faithfulness of the Lord in the past. That's what he's thinking about. For you have been my help. When I meditate on the goodness of the Lord, how he is good, but also how he has been faithful to help me in the past, it brings joy to my soul. He says in verse 8, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me, meditating on the Lord, thinking on him in the watches of the night, clinging to him, holding on to that remembrance, holding on to the truth and reality that the Lord has been my help in times past. This is a part of what brings refreshment to your soul. It helps to sustain you. He says, your right hand upholds me during those times. When people often keep tabs on the bad things that others have done to them, right? You know that kind of person who just... They, they won't let it go. And it's easy for them to grow bitter over the course of life as they continue to hold on to those past hurts, those past losses. Maybe you've been that kind of person yourself. Well, the opposite is also true. Keeping tabs on the faithfulness of God in times past will lead not to bitterness, but to joy. It'll lead to joy, encouragement, even greater faith. In times of distress, the question is often something like, how will I ever get out of this? Or will I ever get out of this? Well, the reality is that if God has brought you through something before, and he's faithful and he never changes, then of course he's going to bring you through this. But we have to stop and take time to reflect on the faithfulness of God in the past. We have to remember that he has already chosen us for salvation. We have to remember that he's already made known to us about salvation. He sent someone to preach the gospel to you. He didn't have to do that. 
Remember those godly individuals that he's brought into your life over the course of time to encourage you in your faith. Remember the ways that he's provided shelter, food, and clothing in times past. I mean, you're still here today. Obviously, he's taking care of you. None of those things happen by chance. None of those things are the result of the universe smiling down on you or good karma. That's nonsense. It's the result of a deliberate act of God's grace providing for you in times when you need it. We need to remember his faithfulness in times past to find refreshment today. We should hold on to these truths. Speak of them often. I remember our family years ago creating a, a thankfulness journal that we would add to over the years, take out on occasion and read through it. It's been some time since we've done that, but it was a refreshing exercise. Just writing down the reasons for which you have to give thanks. I remember our, I've mentioned our mentors from time to time, an older couple who had served in life and ministry together probably longer than either of us had been alive. One of the most encouraging aspects of our relationship with them was the stories they told about their life. Not perfect stories. They never positioned themselves as being perfect or, or better than anyone, but they talked about all of the, the difficult times in life too, the times when they literally only had potatoes and tomatoes to eat for their family. But the Lord provided that miraculously for them. And they were thankful for it. And the Lord helped them to endure all of those difficult times. The Lord had been faithful to them, and that was encouraging to us as we were just getting started in our lives. But we should hold on to those times of God's faithfulness. We should think of them often. We should speak of them often. We should share them often with other brothers and sisters in Christ. I would encourage you to do that, to find some way to record, to think back over your life onto the faithfulness of God and tell somebody about it. Share it, remind yourself, <laughs> but tell somebody else about it for their encouragement in Christ. Well, finally, as we encounter those periods of wilderness wandering in order to find refreshment, we must learn to delight in the presence of the Lord, to reflect on the Lord's provision, third, to anticipate the Lord's protection, verses nine through 11. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. You hear the confidence in that last section? Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for the jackals. Clearly, he's still thinking about being in the wilderness, right? He says, I'm confident that judgment will come to those who've done me wrong. The wrongs that have been committed will be made right. Even though our desire is to see all of our trials through the eyes of faith, we still have to deal with the issue at hand. Sometimes we think of those who are involved in our pain, the circumstances of our pain. We can be tempted to think that it will never be made right, that we will never be made whole in life. We can be tempted to doubt the goodness of God even. But this text reminds us that even though we have to reckon with those issues on some level, that we can still have confidence. We don't need to despair. We don't need to wonder if things will be made right. We can be confident that it will be made right because of who God is. And we have to understand that the way to get to verse 9 with the confidence, clarity, and conviction that David has here, the way to get to verse 9 is through verses 1 through 8. It is by learning to delight in the Lord's presence. It's by remembering that he is God, your God, that he is good, that he is great, and that he's given you something greater than all other things, anything else in this life, which is his steadfast love. It is by learning to delight in his presence. It's by remembering 
in rejoicing in those things. You get the confidence of verse 9 by reflecting often on the faithfulness of the Lord's provision. By thinking often of all the ways that he's provided for you in the past, all the ways that he has been a help to you in the past, remembering that his faithfulness never changes. Because he never changes. In light of those truths, we can be certain in times of trials, we can be certain though we walk through the valley of life's wildernesses, we can be certain that the Lord, our God, will make everything that is wrong in this world right. He will fight all of our battles. We will, whether in this life or the next, he will, whether in this life or the next, bring judgment for those to whom judgment is due. He will bring wholeness in all the areas where we have lost. He's even promised us a new body, having conquered our greatest enemy, which is death. Again, Philippians chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Death itself will be cast into the lake of fire, according to Revelation 20.14. Death is listed among the no mores of Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is the promise of God to you, beloved. No more. Everything that causes pain, everything that hurts, everything that aches, everything that distresses, everything that causes anxiety will be no more. That is his promise to you. David said the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. He's unconfident in this because of who God is. God will bring an end to all my enemies. The mouths of all liars will be stopped. You know, David could have remained in Jerusalem when his son attempted to take the throne by force. He could have remained in Jerusalem and fought. He could have fought for vindication. He could have fought for his right to rule, fought to keep hold of his possessions. And be sure, there are some times when it is necessary to fight. There are some times when it's necessary to take legal action against someone if there's some legal issue involved to seek the protection and justice of the law when it's, a pro- when it's, a, when it's applicable. But regardless of whether you do fight or you don't, your hope is not ultimately in things working out today. Your ultimate hope is not in the success of a court battle or in a better test result. Your hope, believer, ought to be in the Lord. Your hope ought to be in his protection and his greater blessing and the hope of eternal life and his sovereign judgment and rule over all. My title for this message is a song of lament and longing. There are seasons for which we will lament. We will cry out in distress and anguish. We will cry out for help. But ultimately, our lives as believers are characterized not by lament, but by longing. Longing for the Lord, hoping in him. Again, Philippians chapter 3, because we're citizens of heaven, We eagerly await our Savior whose promise is marked with all of the blessings and all of the glory that he's promised and all of the no mores that he's promised. We have a hope that will not disappoint. We have a living hope. The true and living God invites us daily to, as it says in 1 Peter 1.13, fix our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope on that because the Lord is coming. 
We will have those seasons of wilderness wandering. The Lord has not promised that our whole life would be roses. We will have tribulation in this life, but he's promised in spite of that to make, he's promised in spite of that that he will be with us and that he has overcome the world. In order to find refreshment, we need to remember to delight ourselves in the presence of God, to reflect often on his past provision and to look forward to his final protection, his final judgment, and his blessing of those who are his. I pray that the Lord would make this true of us for his glory and also for our collective good. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word, which is true, your word, which sanctifies us. I pray that you would use your word to sanctify the hearts of your people this morning whatever difficulty or trial they are encountered they have encountered whatever difficulty they are going through today i pray god that you would give them joy remembering that you are with us that your hand upholds us and that ultimately you will restore us you will bless us You will fully redeem us and your grace will be ours to enjoy forever. Lord, we look forward to that day. Help us to remind one another that that day is coming and help us to look to that day in hope. Again, for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.